0: So I'd like to st- speak to you today about the gospel. And I uh, might say that's obvious, but I want to speak to you about the difference between the gospel and religion. Because I think there's a profound difference between the gospel and religion. And do you know that churches can be some of the most religious places on the face of the planet? So we don't want to build religion. We want to build God's kingdom, and we want to build... The gospel into our lives, not religion. And so I would like to speak to you about the difference between the gospel and religion this morning. And uh, in Matthew 9:13, Jesus says this: He says, Go and learn what this means. It's an instruction to us as his disciples. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but I came for sinners. (laughs) Aren't you glad about that? I am a dirty, rotten scoundrel. I really am. And uh, I've been saved by the grace of God. And that's the only thing that's transformed my life, is the grace of God. There's nothing good about me. Unless you think there's something good about you, I want to gently tell you this morning, there's nothing good about you either. Religion says there's something good about you. The gospel says we are all desperately in need of a Savior. So I want to try and paint a picture this morning. Imagine we're in a marketplace in the first century, right? It's the ancient Roman world. And uh, we meet this guy who's just been saved. He's just become a Christian. And perhaps we are Romans, who actually were very religious people. Romans, they, they served all kind of idols. They had many, many gods that they served. And so, he has the conversation. So we say to this Christian, we hear that you, are, you have a new religion. And he, he, we say, well, you know, religion is a good thing. We good Romans, we, we, we also serve many gods. Where's the temple in which you serve this god? Where's the place which you worship? And the Christian turns around and says... We don't have a temple. Jesus is our temple. <laughs> and then we ask, we say, "But where, where do your priests? Where do they offer sacrifices? Where do they do all the rituals that religions do? Where do they do all those rituals and offer sacrifices?" And the Christian turns around and he says, "We don't have a priest to mediate for us. Jesus is our priest." And so we turn around and say. Don't you have any place that you go, any t- temple, to, to kind of get favor from your God? Don't you have to do anything to acquire favor from your God? And uh, we, the Christian says, well, no, actually, Jesus is the one who is our perfect sacrifice. He's done all that, that we ever would need. And my friends, I want to say to you that the Christian faith is so utterly different from every other religion and how every other religion works. It doesn't even deserve to be called a religion, if you truly understand the gospel. And this is what Jesus is saying in this, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. I didn't come for the righteous ones. I didn't come for the religious ones. I came for the sinners. And so, I want to start by saying there are two ways that we can relate to God. Generally, people would say there are two ways we can relate to God. The first is that you obey Him and you serve Him and you obey His will. And the other is that you reject God and you simply do your own thing. So that's two ways that you can relate to God. But I want to say that there are not only two options. There is a third option. And the third option is this, is that people try to obey the moral law of God and they try to be good people so that they can earn their salvation. So there really is a third option, by religion, by no religion or licentiousness, whatever you want to call it, and then by trying to save yourself. There are three ways that we can relate to God. And so religious people can look to God as their helper, their teacher, but really at the end of the day what religious people look towards is their own moral performance, their own how am I living up to my own rules in my life. That's what they really depend upon. That's what they really look to as their saviour. If I'm performing well, I'm okay. If I'm not performing well, I'm not okay. But I want to say to you that both religion and licentiousness, they are essentially both rejecting God, rejecting Jesus as saviour. Because religion tries to control And so legalism puts rules in place and says, if you live by these moral rules, you're okay. And that's a rejection, actually, of saying, Jesus, I need you as my Savior. What we're saying is, I'm depending on the rules. I'm not depending on Jesus to save me. And in the same way, a secular lifestyle which rejects God is doing the same thing. It's saying, I'm not, I'm not recognizing God at all. I'm going to live my life as I want. I'm my own Lord. Don't, don't say there's another Lord over my life. Essentially, religion and irreligion, they're doing the same thing. They're rejecting God, Jesus, as Savior. But Christians, and I hope that you in this church, we're beginning to understand this more and more. Christians that understand the gospel of Jesus... Know that through the gospel, both religion and irreligion or licentiousness, whatever you want to call it, are both essentially the same thing and they are both wrong. Christians that understand the gospel have come to understand that their sin and their good deeds are both equal ways to try and avoid Jesus, needing Jesus as Saviour. And so essentially, I want to say to you, the gospel, the gospel of Christ, is an invitation to become less religious, not more religious. Essentially, the gospel kills religion in us as we simply come to love Jesus. It kills everything in us that is religious and trying to please God and trying to win His favor by doing good stuff, if we understand the gospel. So you see, there is a very subtle difference between religion and and the gospel, and maybe some of these things will help you in understanding what I'm trying to say. Religions, religion says this, I obey God, and therefore I am accepted. That's what religion says. If I follow the rules, if I pray, if I read my Bible, if I give my money, I'm okay, and that pleases God. That is religion. The gospel says, I am accepted completely by Christ, and therefore I am I obey Him because I love Him. It's a completely different motivation. Religion always tries to motivate you out of fear. If you don't do this, God will punish you. If you don't tithe, your washing machine will break. If you don't give money, if you don't pray, if you don't do all this stuff, God will be angry with you. That is religion. Don't ever be motivated by religion. Religion. What does the gospel say? The gospel motivates us out of grateful joy because of what Jesus has done for us. That's why we pray. That's why we worship. That's why we give. Because we love Jesus. Not because we're afraid that He's going to punish us if we don't. It's completely different. Religion says, obey God and you will get stuff out of Him. If you obey God, He will bless you. That's religion. And how much, how much of, of Western Christianity is based around these things? The gospel says, I come to God and I love God, not from what I get from Him just because I love Him. I get Him. I get God. That's what I get. At the end of the day, I get Him completely, fully in my life. And that is what I'm after. I'm not after what He can give me. I am after Him. That's why I love worship, because worship is saying, God, I'm just here for you. I'm not getting anything out of this other than worshipping you and saying I'm so grateful that you are God in my life. Can I give you another little illustration? Religion says that circumstances, when circumstances in my life go wrong, God is angry at me, God doesn't love me anymore. And why? Because I, I subtly believe... That everyone that is good, everyone that is doing the right thing, deserves a comfortable life. That's what religion says. The gospel says this. The gospel says, when things go wrong in my life, when I'm struggling, when I've lost my job, when I don't know where I'm going, all that kind of stuff, even though I am struggling, even though I might struggle, I know this, that all of my punishment, everything that I deserve be punished for, has been taken on Christ. I rest on that and I I rest in the fact that God might allow these things for my training, but as He's training me, He never takes His hand of Father off my life. Never. That's what the Gospel says. In religion, my prayer life is motivated by this. God, I need you to do this for me. And I pray out of uh, motivation to try and dictate and control my circumstances in my life so my circumstances are more pleasurable. That is how I'm motivated from a religious heart when I pray. Gospel, when you're set free by the gospel, you want relationship with God and you want fellowship with Him and that is the reason that you pray. Simply because you love Him. Not because you want out anything out of him. How much of our lives aren't motivated by religious motivations? Oh God, if I do this, then you do that. Oh God, if I do this, it's, 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 then you do that. It's like putting a, a, a dollar, a pound thing into the slot machine and pulling it and saying, oh God, if I do this, then you must do that. It's religion. It's not the gospel. And so, in, in religion, my view of myself, it swings between two extremes. When I feel like I'm living up to my standards, I'm happy, I'm satisfied, I feel like I'm a good doing a good thing. The danger is that I look down on everyone else who's not meeting my standards. It's religion. And then, when I'm not living up to my standards, I feel guilty, I feel... I'm confident, I don't really feel humble, I just feel like I'm a failure. If you feel like that, I want to say to you, perhaps it's because you're motivated by religion, not the gospel. You see, in the gospel, my view of myself and and your view of yourself is not based on your behavior or your moral performance at all. It's based purely on Christ's work in your life. This is the wonder about the gospel. I am simultaneously, right now, I am a dirty, rotten scoundrel, and wrist in need of a savior, right now, and simultaneously I am in Christ, perfectly in Christ. And because I am perfectly in Christ, when he looks at me, he doesn't see dirty, rotten scoundrel, he sees the blood of Jesus. This is how we live. This is the reality of the gospel. And so He doesn't see my, my sin. He doesn't see anything. And you know, that brings a deep humility into your life when you realize that's what God sees. You see, sometimes we can come to God and, and we can give Him things in our lives in the hope that He blesses us, that we can store up treasure in heaven. And we need, we need to store up some treasure in heaven. But sometimes, you know, I think we can do things not really for God, but for ourselves. It's only when we experience the grace of God in our lives. We've become so changed that we can start doing things purely, there's this old phrase, for goodness sake. Yeah? It's when we've been touched by the grace of God that we start to be motivated to do things purely for goodness sake, for truth's sake, for Jesus' sake, for God's sake, not for what we get. So, maybe you're not a Christian this morning. Maybe you're visiting and you don't know Christ. I want to say this to you. To become a Christian is to firstly admit that there's a problem. (laughs) And the problem is this. The problem is that we've been substituting ourselves to try and obey God by religion, by doing the right thing, to be our own savior. That's what the problem is. Or we've been irreligious and we've said, God, we're going to have nothing to do with you. And like I've said, these these things are, are the same. And so what needs to change is that To please God, we don't need to try harder. Aren't you tired of trying hard to do the right thing? Well, I want to say to you this morning God doesn't ask you to try harder to do the right thing. What God asks you to do is to repent in a different way. He asks you to, to, to understand that you not only need to be sorry for your sins and the things that displease Him, it's more than that. It's much more than that. It's that we have to admit to ourselves that we've been trying to obey the rules. To please Him. There's a deeper repentance that He's calling us to. So actually, it's not just about the outward sin. It's actually about the thing that you've been trying to live by rules. And I don't want you to live by rules. I want you to live by the grace of God in your life, by the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul says this in Galatians 2.21. He says, I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Jesus died for no purpose. Let me translate it for you. Paul is saying this. If righteousness, if being right right with God, comes through following rules, then Jesus died for nothing. That's what he's saying. Galatians 5.4, he says, you are cut off from Christ, you who would be justified, that's the theological word for made right with God, if you want to be justified by the law, by following rules, you are cut off off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. You're saying your understanding is in the wrong place. And so I believe this. We need to, we need to in, a, in our lives trust God for deep repentance, not only from our sin, we need to repent from our sin, but also from our self-righteousness that we actually have got anything to offer God in the first place. And we're actually doing okay and we're following the rules subtly. Got to repent of that. So To become a Christian means you accept that there's a problem. Secondly, to become a Christian means that we ask God to accept us for Jesus' sake. Not for our sake. For Jesus' sake. And that we know that we are accepted, completely accepted in Christ, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done in our lives. That's why we're acceptable to God. You don't have to strive. You know all the stuff if you need more faith? You need more faith to see people healed. You need more faith to see people evangelized. You need more faith that's all about you and your faith. It's not about you and your faith. It's about the faithfulness of Jesus. It's about what He has done. We put our trust in Him to heal people. We put our trust in Him to see people saved. It's not about me not about you. <laughs> it's about what Jesus has done. He's done it all. And our faith, our complete trust is in Him. And actually, when you get saved, when you come to salvation, you know what you're actually saying? You're saying, Jesus, all the trust that I've put in myself to follow the rules and do the right thing, I'm letting that go and I'm putting all my trust in you. And I'm saying, I trust you completely for my life. That's what it means to be saved. That is the gospel. We don't, we don't subscribe to some kind of intellectual doctrine about Jesus. When we are saved, we transform all of our trust, or we put all of our eggs into Jesus' basket, and we say, I'm not leaving any of them behind. And uh, Paul reminds us of, 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 of this very thing in Galatians 2.16. He says this, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus and we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works in the law. Because by works of the law, no one is justified. Paul says it so plainly. He says, no, no, we put all our faith in Jesus. Nothing in rules, regulations, sacrifices. No faith in that. It's all in Jesus because that's how we're justified. That's how we made right with God. So I want to say to you and I want to say to myself, the most important thing in your life is not your past. It's not what you've done. If you want to know some things about my life, you would be embarrassed. <laughs> it's not about that. It's not about my past. It's not about your past. It's about Jesus' past. It's about what Jesus has done. It's about the perfection that He lived. It's about him, His perfect obedience that He took all of our punishment upon Himself that we deserved and He lived a way that pleased God perfectly, and because of that he could say on the cross, it is finished, I've done all that God asked me to do, and because of that, we are saved by grace alone, simply by believing in what he has done. I love Martin Luther. Martin Luther is a great reformer, and Martin Luther was one of the first people to realize this, that when you come to the gospel, when you are saved by Jesus... Every single believer has a default setting. You know, like a computer has a default setting. And the default setting of all of our hearts is that we we tend towards being religious. That's the default setting of all of our hearts. We tend towards subtly over a period of time just getting into trying to do the right thing. And what Luther says is this. He says that every single one of us needs to reset our hearts daily. When I first met R.T. Kendall, he said this to me. He said, "Aunt." It's wonderful to come into freedom in Christ. It's a harder thing to keep yourself free. He's saying the same thing. Because we all tend to back to want to be religious and just to do the right thing. And we have to reset our hearts, the default of our hearts, every single day that we come back to Jesus, it's about you, it's not about me. And every good work that we live out is motivated by grace, it's not motivated by trying to please God and earn favor with him. You know, I want to say that's why we sometimes lack joy in our lives, lack joy in our ministry, that our emotions are up and down all the time, because we believe the gospel at one level, but another deeper level, we continue to operate as if we are actually saved by works. And then when that disconnect comes, joy is robbed from us. so then can I conclude with this what is our motivation to do good works then why why should we do good stuff well I could ask that question in another way what makes people honest what makes people um, motivated by generosity Uh, there are many people that have tried to answer these questions over many many centuries and I'd just like to uh, reference a guy called Jonathan Edwards anyone heard of Jonathan Edwards he was an American theologian make an evangelist, and there was a wonderful revival in America that he kind of spearheaded a couple of centuries ago. And he said this. He said there are two kinds of moral behavior. Alright? Two kinds of moral behavior. One he called common virtue and the other he called true virtue. And he said this. Let's take honesty for example. The vast majority of us are honest out of fear. Why did I say that? well, We're really motivated by this. I need to be honest because I don't want to get in trouble with the police. I, I need to be honest about my taxes because I don't want to get in trouble with the receiver of revenue. I need to be honest in my life because if I'm not honest, God is going to punish me. This is really the motivation of most people. Honesty. Okay? It's motivated from that place. And so, actually, we restrain our hearts out of fear of not wanting to get caught out. We restrain our hearts out of fear. Now this is the question, though, and this is where the tension lies, because God does use that to restrain a world that is evil. He does use it. But he has the tension. If we are motivated by pride and fear in that way, what is the main reason that people are dishonest? why are people dishonest? Because they are motivated by pride and fear. It's exactly the same motivation. And this is the problem, you see, because it does, it might restrain our hearts, but it doesn't radically change our hearts. Does it? And so, when we are responding to God out of fear, we're really being moral for ourselves, we're really being honest for ourselves, we're not being honest for God. And it might even lead us to want to take care of the poor, and all those things, and those are good things, but they're not really dealing with the heart. What then is true virtue, in the words of Edwards? True virtue, he says, is this. It's when you are honest, when you are generous, not because you get something out of it, or because you want to do it to make you feel better. It's simply because you are completely overwhelmed by the beauty and the majesty and the wonder and the glory of God, and you want to do it for His sake not for yours. And I want to say to you that you can only live out of that place when you've been absolutely impacted and transformed by the grace of God in your own life. You can only be motivated like that when you know Jesus, when you know the overwhelming goodness of God to you and all that He's done in your life and all that He's given and the price that He's paid. When you, when you begin to understand that, we can begin to live out of a place of grace, not a place of... Of religion, You see, that kind of truth, that kind of uh, true virtue comes when you see that Christ has died for you, that he kept a promise to his father despite all that he had to suffer and go through. He kept a promise to his father and nothing that we will ever do will ever wear out his love for us and because of that our hearts are not just restrained, they are completely changed. This is what Jonathan Edwards says. He says, Whatever is done, if the heart is withheld, there's nothing really given to God. What is given is given to the man that given to that that the man makes his end in giving. If his end be only himself, then it's only given to himself and not to God. If his aim is to his own his own honour, then the gift is something offered to his honour. If it is to for worldly profit, then the gift is to himself. If the sincere aim of his heart is not towards God, then there's nothing given to God. Okay, so I want to conclude with this. What about the gospel and our hearts? The good news is that the gospel is not religion, and the gospel is not licentiousness either. It's not irreligion, on the other hand. It's something completely different. Religion makes obeying a moral code or law the way that we are saved, while irreligion, licentiousness, just says, I'm a law unto myself. I don't need God anyway. So this is the thing about the gospel. You know that we are called to love the law of God. Well, how does that work? Are we called? I mean, we're not under the law. Why are we called to love the law? Well, this is what um, I believe the Bible teaches, that Jesus so loved the law of God that he paid the price to fulfill the law completely on our behalf. You see, we have a unique position as Christians that believe the gospel. On the one hand, we are free from obeying the law as a moral system that saves us. On the one hand, we are free from that completely. And yet, on the other hand, we so love the law of God. Why do we love the law of God? Because it shows us what God is like. It shows us who he is. It shows us what he loves. It shows us what he doesn't like. It shows us his heart. The law shows us something of the heart of God, what is good and what is evil. And Jesus took the law so seriously that he made himself obedient to it completely and paid, fulfilled it ultimately so that you and I could be saved, saved by sheer grace alone. That is the wonder of the gospel. And so... I don't think we can ever take obedience lightly. I mean, uh, Paul says this in Romans 7.22, I delight in the law of God in my innermost being. I delight in God's law. I love God's law. And yet at the same time, Paul said in Romans eight one, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He realized these two things simultaneously. As a system, we are not under the law. We are completely free because Christ fulfills the law. Completely. It's a beautiful thing. So we are made righteous because of Jesus, not because of ourselves at all. We are made perfect in His sight. Now, I want to just say this. That's a wonderful thing to know that academically. I am made perfect. I am made righteous in Christ. Uh, uh, all my sin has been taken upon Him, etc., etc. Maybe you like me. Maybe you have a temper. Maybe you speak words too quickly. That's one of the things I've had to learn in my life. So this is what I'm trying to illustrate. There's a difference, you see, all my angry words, all my words that I've spoken quickly and I shouldn't have said and I didn't think about, all those words are under the blood of Christ. They are forgiven. God doesn't, when He sees me, He doesn't see that stuff anymore. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Well, if you like me, that's a wonderful thing. This is what the gospel teaches. You are forgiven for all that stuff. But how do we actually become righteous here on earth? In other words, how do I become less angry? I mean, God sees perfection in Christ in my life. But how how do I become less angry? How do I become more um, patient? How do I, because I mean, words that are spoken unwisely, they hurt people. So, I mean, I don't want to hurt people. So how can I actually become a person that doesn't hurt people by how I speak? Is it by trying harder? Well, I don't think the gospel says it is by trying harder. I want to use an example out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, which perfectly illustrates what I'm trying to say. Paul wanted to get some money together for some of the churches that didn't have money. And this is how he motivates the people in the church. He doesn't say to them, I am the apostle. I planted this church. I'm telling you what's good for you. Give the money. doesn't do that. He doesn't, at the same time, he doesn't appeal to the emotions. He doesn't put up pictures of starving people. He doesn't put up a slow motion video of of orphans that are dying, people that are dying of starvation. He doesn't try and motivate people from emotion. How much in the church is motivated by twisting people's emotions, trying to get them to give out of emotion? The gospel doesn't motivate us like that. He says an amazing unforgettable thing to the church in Corinth. He says this for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. What is he saying? Paul is reminding them about money and wealth and poverty in the light of the gospel. And he's simply saying this. He's saying, take some time to meditate on the grace of God. What Jesus has done for you. Just think about that. Let God speak to you about that. And that will transform a heart that is ungenerous into a generous heart. That will transform a heart that is angry, into a gentle heart. That will transform an impatient, frustrated person into a patient person. I've said this over and over and over again. The gospel works from the inside out, not from the outside in. That's what Paul says. And so I want to say to you that what really changes us is not rules It's not someone sitting on your shoulder saying, this is what you need to do. What really changes us is when we meditate on the gospel of Jesus, the price that he paid, what he's poured out for us. And then our hearts begin to be changed by the Holy Spirit. And as our hearts are changed by the Holy Spirit, everything changes. Everything. What is going to keep you sexually faithful to your spouse? Such a temptation in, in, in the world today. What is going to make you a generous and a good parent? It's not a fear that you don't want to sleep with someone else because you don't want to get found out. You don't want to be embarrassed. You don't want people to know in the church, and there's that, that kind of restraint. That's not going to keep you pure. What is going to keep you pure? is really a deepening understanding of the salvation that you enjoy because of Jesus. And then you want to honor Him and you want to love your wife and you want to honor your kids and you want to be a good parent, not because anyone's telling you to, but because you know Jesus has transformed you and you love Him and it's a response from your heart. And so Titus, Paul encourages Titus, he says this in in Titus uh, 2.11. He says, he encourages us all to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live a self-controlled life. And the way that Paul says we get a self-controlled life is not by trying harder. Again, he says an incredible thing in that same passage. He says the same thing that he says in 2 Corinthians. He says, it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to everything that is ungodly. And then he points them into verse 5. He says, remember... He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing and the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's how we are transformed, as the Holy Spirit washes us, washes us, washes us, transforms us. There are all sorts of motivations to say no to things. You can say no because you don't want to look bad. You can say no because you don't want to be excluded from a family or group. You can say no because you want God to bless you. You can say no because you don't want to feel bad about yourself when you get up in the morning. You can have all these motivations to say no to anger and ungodliness and things. But all those things are based on fear. All those things are based on pride. All those things are based on you trying to do the right thing and actually, or me trying to do the right thing. The only thing that changes our hearts. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing. And so I'm trying to encourage you to live in this church free from religion, but loving the gospel of Jesus, loving the work of the Holy Spirit, worshiping Him, giving your whole life in generosity and honesty and integrity, not because anyone is compelling you to do anything, but because Jesus is transforming you from the inside out. That's it. And so I tweeted this week, it's a... a, um, A quote from Tim Keller, and I'd just like to conclude by reading it, and then we're going to break bread together. Tim Keller says this, The gospel, if it's really understood, if it's really believed, it removes neediness. The need to be constantly respected, constantly appreciated, and well regarded. The need to have everything in your life go well. The need to have power over others. All of these great deep needs continue to control you only because the concept of the glorious God delighting in you with all of His being is still just that, a concept and nothing more. Paul says, if we really want to change, we must let the gospel teach us, that is, train us Discipline us, coach us over a period of time. You must let the gospel argue with you. I love that. You've got to let the gospel argue with you. The gospel does argue with you. I mean, when I read the scriptures sometimes, I go, no, that can't be right. Surely that's not, surely it's not my problem. Surely it's someone else's problem. No, it's my problem. The gospel argues with us until we submit our hearts willingly to it. So, he says, you must let the gospel sink down deeply into your heart until it changes your motivation, your views, your attitudes, your life. mean, it's good news. <laughs> it is good news that you don't have to try hard to please God. All you have to do is dwell on Him, what He has done, what Christ has done. Enjoy worship, enjoy prayer. Let Him transform you by the washing of His Word, by the power of His Holy Spirit in His life. And that's why we come to the cross. That's why we come. That's why we break bread just about every week. Because we're saying, every time we break bread, we're saying, God, I'm not depending on myself. I'm reminding myself again that I depend on your broken body. I depend on your blood. I depend on your grace in my life. There's nothing I can offer you except myself and say, Lord, everything I do, I want to do it because I live for you and I love you. But actually, God, at the end of the day, it's about Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about living by rules. It's not about trying people, trying harder, trying to get my life in order. No, Lord, simply as I dwell on what you have done, you show me all of that anyway and you transform me from the inside out.